Welcome to The Alchemical Mind. My name is Martin. Usually when I record an episode of the podcast, I don't begin with a topic in order to find a title. I actually do the opposite. I know what I want to talk about, and I come up with a title, and then I start talking. But this episode is going to be a little bit different because... I've had some interesting synchronicities over the past couple of days, and I honestly don't know what this episode is going to be about. Now, I have some ideas, of course, and there are a couple things that I want to hit on, but I don't have a title yet for this episode. Now, I will say part of the idea behind this episode is the... The story of the Flatlands that I discussed on the previous episode, so go check that out if you are unaware of what that is, or you can just continue listening because I will play a, a fascinating explanation of Flatland. And before I continue, Flatland is a book written, I believe, 1887, somewhere around that time, late 1800s, by Edwin Abbott, and it's a, a very interesting story. I've never personally read it. I did watch a an animated movie of the story i will post a link in the show notes if you want to watch that i will warn you it's uh it's about two hours long and it is not the best thing uh it's it's comically bad but if you manage to stick with it you might get some of the ideas now we'll be presenting a little clip of carl sagan explaining the story it's a clip taken from his tv show cosmos I talked about that in the previous episode, but the reason I wanted to do this is I originally had the intention of using the metaphor of the flatland as an introduction to the mysticism and psychedelics episode that I will be doing at the end of the week. But a couple days ago, there was a brand new episode of the Mind Escape podcast, a podcast that I really enjoy. I I love the host as well. I love the guests. And uh, they had a very interesting person on the podcast, Donald Carroll. And he was talking about uh, the the connection between the cubit, the, the unit of measurement that the Egyptians used, and the length of the spine. I'm not going to get into that in here. You can go listen to that episode. It's fantastic. Uh, you can find it at mindescapepodcast.com. But in the Patreon addition uh, to the episode... They were talking a little bit about the story of Flatland, and I found that so fascinating, the synchronicity of this coming up, because this is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a couple of weeks, and here I have a podcast that I listen to talking about the same story. And so I decided to disjoint the Flatland segment from Mysticism and Psychedelics, and kind of do it as its own thing, because as I started doing that, I realized that the metaphor of Flatland is much deeper than simply explaining a psychedelic experience. And actually goes directly into the next episode of the podcast, which is my speech on authority and giving away your authority and how to regain your authority. So I want to talk about that a little bit, and uh, and before I do, let me just go ahead and play that clip of Carl Sagan from Cosmos. 
Let's imagine that we are perfectly flat. I mean, absolutely flat. And that we live, appropriately enough, in a flatland. A land designed and named by Edwin Abbott, a Shakespearean scholar who lived in Victorian England. Everybody in flatland is, of course, exceptionally flat. We have squares, circles, and triangles, and we all scurry about, and we can go into our houses and do our flat business. Now, we have width and length, but no height at all. Now, these little cutouts have some little height, but uh, let's ignore that. Let's imagine that these are absolutely flat. That being the case, we know, us flatlanders, about left-right, and we know about forward-back, but we have never heard of up-down. Let us imagine that into flatland, hovering above it, comes a strange three-dimensional creature which, oddly enough, looks like an apple. And the three-dimensional creature sees uh, an attractive, congenial-looking square, watches it enter its house, and decides in a gesture of interdimensional amity to say hello. Hello, says the three-dimensional creature. How are you? I am a visitor from the third dimension. Well, the poor square looks around his closed house, sees no one there, and what's more, has witnessed a greeting coming from his insides, a voice from within. He surely is getting a little worried about his sanity. The three-dimensional creature is unhappy about being considered a psychological aberration, and so he descends to actually enter Flatland. Now, a three-dimensional creature exists in Flatland only partially. Only a plane, a cross-section through him can be seen. So. When the three-dimensional creature first reaches flatland, it's only the points of contact which can be seen. And as the apple were to descend through, slither by flatland, we would progressively see higher and higher slices. So the square, as time goes on, sees a set of objects mysteriously appear from nowhere and inside a closed room and change their shape dramatically. His only conclusion could be that he's gone bonkers. Well, the apple might be a little annoyed at this conclusion, and so not such a friendly gesture from dimension to dimension, makes a contact with the square from below and sends our flat creature fluttering and spinning above flatland. At first, the square has no idea of what's happening. He's terribly confused. This is utterly outside his experience. But after a while, he comes to realize that he is seeing inside closed rooms in Flatland. He is looking inside his fellow flat creatures. He is seeing Flatland from a perspective no one has ever seen it before to his knowledge. Getting into another dimension provides as an incidental benefit a kind of X-ray vision. Now our flat creature slowly descends to the surface and his friends rush up to see him. From their point of view, he has mysteriously appeared from nowhere. He hasn't walked from somewhere else. He's come from some other place. They say, for heaven's sake, what's happened to you? And the poor square has to say, well, I was in 
some other mystic dimension called up. And they will pat him on his side and comfort him, or else they'll ask, well, show us, where is that three dimen third dimension? Point to it, and the poor square will be unable to comply. Now, I hope that short uh, five-ish minute clip kind of explained the, the very basics of the story. And I hope that you can understand why it is so important, a comparison to the type of work that I talk about here on this podcast, both philosophical and theosophical work. Now, if you find that little bit from Carl Sagan interesting, I do recommend you go and find more information on the story because there's only so much that Carl Sagan can explain in those five minutes, and there's definitely only so much that I can explain in the amount of time I generally allow myself to talk on this podcast. Because the story of Flatland itself is actually much more intricate and complicated than what is discussed in that five-minute clip. The five-minute clip does give you the basics. So let's start there. Now in the story you have this character, right? He's a square. He sees this mysterious layering of something in his flat world. That mysterious thing ends up pushing him away from his two-dimensional world into a third dimension. So now he's floating above and he can see everything around him. In many respects, this is actually almost exactly how this type of work and thinking can make the world appear. It's almost as if we are two-dimensional beings living in this multi-dimensional world but know nothing about it. Right? And this is true of the majority of people. You know, the general analogy that is used for this is uh, you know, waking up or achieving enlightenment or any of these other metaphors. And and they're all fine, except ultimately not entirely correct. And I'm, you know, I'm not going against thousands of years of teaching. I think the problem is you can only make a metaphor as good as the language that you're using. And as I've discussed previously on the podcast, the language that we have created is just simply not very good. Because ultimately, the language is created to explain and discuss events within ourselves, outside of ourselves, and the world around us, to identify relationships between objects, but all within things that we can see because we, as people, evolved in a world that required those things. And therefore, the language that we have evolved is used to describe those things in the world in which we live. And so how can you find the correct words to specify something outside of the world that which you can see? What would such a word look like? I talked a little bit about Sapir Wolf in, in the movie Arrival in a previous episode. So there, that, that is a, a possible way to see things, right? Where your system of writing might take into account the fact that you communicate entire thoughts at once instead of sounds or words or concepts. You, you, you express an entire feeling within a moment and therefore your writing system would be different overall with the way that we think that is nearly impossible for us to do right if we had some kind of say telepathy 
a writing system for someone that's telepathic might look very different from someone that has to take the time to blurt out a successive pattern of sounds. And this is kind of how the analogy goes within the realm of Flatland. Now, once the square is thrown into this third dimension, and you can see more than just back and forth, left and right. Now the square can see up and down. The square has no way to correctly express those feelings. And while the little clip that I just played is actually very good at explaining the basics of the story, the story itself is extremely complicated. This is like a mathematical treatise that the story is. Because there's a lot more going on than simply a square being thrown into the third dimension. There's actually a lot of civil unrest within the story. There are different shapes that uh, you know kind of supplant for different uh, economic or social classes, right? So, uh, you know, even though there are two-dimensional shapes, there are squares, there are triangles. Uh, the circles are actually the highest on the scale because they are closest to perfection, right? Of of only having the 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 one-sidedness, I would assume. But if you dive into the story, there's different, actually, even different types of circles. Because uh, what is a circle, but really a, a one-sided object, right? There is no, no more than one side. Even though, say, if you were standing in front of a circle, you could only see the front of it and maybe not the back. Well, that's purely a matter of perspective. Because if you were on the other side, then the back would be the front and the front would be the back, right? So there's only one side. In a three-dimensional kind of relation to this kind of object would be something like a Mobius strip. So you can look that up if you're not aware of what a Mobius strip is. But a Mobius strip is a three-dimensional object that only has one side. And of course, when you see presentations on creating Mobius strips and the kind of things that you can do with Mobius strips, uh, and there are some really cool presentations you can check out, it really blows people's minds because how can you have a three-dimensional object with one side? And of course, it really blows people's minds when you uh, start playing with how the Mobius strip is created and in the way that you create it, you can actually cut it in half and create uh, one larger Mobius strip. How can it be that you cut something in half and it becomes larger? Or there's a way that you can shape it where if you cut it in half, you actually get two conjoined circles instead of this weird knotted shape. That's counterintuitive for a lot of us because we don't see that kind of thing in our reality. And this is how it plays out within the story because when the square comes back into Flatland, the square has a hard time explaining exactly what it is that he sees in three dimensions. Now there's kind of a, a little bit of a conspiracy theory as well because this is not the first time this has happened. There have been many other shapes in Flatland that have been visited by third three-dimensional beings. Uh, my presumption is actually the same being because he, he, part of the story he talks about coming to Flatland every thousand years. But he has visited other beings, so there have been other shapes that have seen the third dimension. And they're all kind of seen as quacks and loons. And, and on, on, the, you know, on the new year, right, on every thousand years, or I guess in the new millennium, every millennium, uh, they have a celebration, and uh, you know any incarcerated person that has said they have seen the third dimension is executed. 
And this is, of course, not very dissimilar from how it occurs in our world. Now, of course, this is not against any of the physical sciences, say, for example, psychiatry or psychology. I think there are definitely uses for those ideas. But one thing that has been imposed upon people is kind of these mental disorders, right? Where, you know, if you, uh, if you see ghosts, maybe you, you're, you're paranoid, you're schizophrenic, right? Or, uh, you know, if you're possessed by a demon, you, well, there's no real demon, so it's got to be a multiple personality disorder. Or, you know, if your mind is trapped within the body and cannot express itself, right? Uh, and by that, I mean not your, your brain mind, but the, the ultimate mind, the self, the inner self, is trapped in a body with no working means of expression, then that person can be considered, say, autistic. Now, I'm not saying any of this is exactly the case. I'm just giving examples of possible ways of thinking about these things that aren't the normally accepted situation. And remember that this was not always the case. In fact, I would argue that in previous times, say hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and surely today in some cultures around the world, these things are not seen as disabilities or issues of mental health, but are actually deeply integrated within society itself. You know, people that would hear voices, for example, would be seen as shamans. They would have a leadership role within the community. And of course, whether that is the case or not depends on ultimately your view of the outside world. If you believe that there is no greater thing aside from what you see, then of course you might see those people as crazy. You might put them in mental hospitals. And, you know, this, this would be true for anything, right? Think about, uh, you know, in the 60s, for example, you might have, uh, you know, women that are expressing you know, severe depression as a result of, say, undergoing puberty uh, being put into mental hospitals because they're, they're manic. You might see that today with some other things. Maybe somebody is, uh, you know, gay or transsexual or whatever. Some people might say, oh, well, there's, there's something wrong with them. They're defective. Right? God wouldn't want you to do that. That's kind of a, a, a clash of ideas, but we will get into that here either. But when the square comes back, he has a hard time expressing what it is that he sees. And he is actually taken back into the three-dimensional world by this sphere that comes down to see him. You know, Sagan uses the apple. I guess that's a... A nice illustration for a cosmos presentation. But in the story, it's a sphere that comes in and takes a square. and It, it takes a square into uh, spaceland because now you have volume. You have space, right? You have forward, back, left, right, up, and down. And, uh, you know, things in spaceland aren't really any better. One could argue they're exactly the same as they were within flatland because spaceland also has kind of a civil war going on. There's some tensions at the border in Spaceland. But there's also a lot of internal struggle because there are folks within Spaceland that do not want people from Spaceland to dive into Flatland and show them the third dimension. This might be kind of a, you know, like a Star Trek thing, right? The Prime Directive where you shouldn't go and and mess with those civilizations, give them any technology or anything that might uh, accelerate their advancement. You're supposed to let them kind of evolve on their own. 
there's people that feel that way. And uh, it, there's a whole trial that goes on with the sphere and, uh, you know, the, the square is questioned. And ultimately, it's decided that maybe they should just simply destroy Flatland because that's the only way that they can prevent them from gaining further knowledge of the third dimension. And also, they shouldn't have done it in the first place. Now they have to get rid of them. Kind of interesting way to look at it. I guess that would be the anti-prime directive. Interesting way of looking at it. But what's interesting is, and again, this is not in the Cosmos segment, but it is in the story. The part that I found the most interesting is that when there's a section in the Flatland that Square is talking to Sphere. And Square says, well, what if there was something beyond the third dimension? If there was us, the squares, the triangles, the, the circles in Flatland, and we thought there might be something purer, something better, something holier, and that was you in the third dimension, well, what if there was something purer and greater than you in a fourth dimension? And maybe something greater and purer than that in a fifth dimension, and so on and so forth. Now, from everything that we've seen, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you could probably assume that that would be your thought exactly. Well, yes, if I didn't see a third dimension before and you showed it to me, then of course there has to be a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and whatever. But that's not the reaction of the sphere. In fact, the sphere acts exactly like the authority figures of Flatland do. That's preposterous. There, there's no way there could be anything beyond the third sphere. We can go forward, back, left, right, up, and down. Where else am I going to go? And so this leads to some tension. And uh, again, I recommend you either read it or watch the movie that I'll put in the show notes uh, if you can get through the whole thing. But there's some really interesting clips in that section. Now, after this whole trial's over, Square does get sent back by Sphere into Flatland. And a civil war has erupted. There's actually been an invasion from the northern territory in Flatland. Uh, those people are a little bit different. They are uh, chromatics. Uh, that's actually something not explained at all in, in the Cosmos segment. And something I have not discussed yet. Because within even Flatland, there's some dissent on how two-dimensionality should be expressed. Because if you watch the clip, and I'm sure if you try to imagine this whole story within your head... You may have not have realized that you, yourself, cannot actually picture exactly what Flatland would look like. Because usually you would see it from the top, right? That's how you would see a two-dimensional shape. You would see it from above so you can see its internal area. But actually, if you, yourself, were a two-dimensional being living in a Flatland, you could not do that. Because in order for you to be able to see somebody head-on... You would have to have height. And there is no height in Flatland. There's only length and width. So in the story, the way that this has kind of gotten around is uh, Flatlanders actually see like vibrations of color. Now, this, this in itself does lead, to me at least, to a little bit of three-dimensionality. But for the sake of the story, it works. And in particular for this segment. Because most shapes would be kind of uh, shades of like a white glowing light and the way that they would differentiate in depth is if something is closer it's a brighter object if something is further away then it's actually dimmer 
the shape of the light would kind of vary slightly based on the shape of the being, right? So there's squares, there's triangles, there's uh, circles, but there's also, you know, pentagons and hexagons and octagons, all different kinds of multi-sided shapes. But you would only see them in colors. Now, there are some people that feel like they should express themselves beyond simply just a a white light, or it's kind of a like a bluish white light, actually. Uh, they feel like they should be uh, chromatic, multichromatic, not just monochromatic, meaning that they should be able to express themselves in different colors. And you see this very early on in the story where there are some, uh, there's some, I guess you could say, prophets or uh, I, I, I can't think of the word, but people that would proselytize being multicolored, multi-shaded, as opposed to monochromatic. And you know they are called the the, the chromatics. And uh, I, I found that really fascinating as well. Because even within the monochromatics and the multichromatics, uh, there are folks who believe there could be a third dimension and some that do not. Right? Some feel like there should be only one way. Right? This would be in, – in today's politics, for example, it would be like the left, the right, and the middle. Either progressive or conservative or somewhere in the middle. And you know, even within those things, there are different spectrums of beliefs and ideas, and that's kind of how it works here. The the folks that are these this bluish white light are kind of more the conservatives, right? Follow the the law, uh, follow the formation. I think is the the term used in the story. And uh, you know, the the chromatics, the ones that feel like things should be more inclusive and and figure in a wider range of opinions and ideas, uh, they use uh, different terminology. But ultimately, we have the square. Who doesn't really care about the white light or the, or, or the chromatics, right? One of his kids even tries to express himself as a chromatic, and he kind of pushes that away until he sees the third dimension. And now he tries to tell his son, well, you know, you can be a chromatic. And the kid's like, no, no, I can't. You're, you're being preposterous. I have to be this way. And of course, he doesn't have to be that way. But had it not been for the fact that Square saw the third dimension, he wouldn't have these new and different ideas. And isn't that kind of how it is when you try to get into this work on figuring out what you are or who you are? Or, you know, there's different there's different shades of that, right? Maybe all you want to do is is to quiet your mind, you get into meditation. Maybe you, you want to get deeper into philosophical stuff. And maybe you get really dip into it, or you happen upon a a I hate using this word, but I will say a genuine use of a psychedelic. Because as I'll talk about in the next episode, I mean genuine really is relative and ultimately is up to you. But I just kinda wanna use a, a broader terminology for this discussion. Something more quote unquote legitimate, I guess you could say, right? I mean I remember being a high school student into college and trying psychedelics right i remember the first time i tried mushrooms for example i was uh i was a little between 18 and 19 roughly there i can't remember exactly but uh i took it never have done it before and i saw i saw the craziest thing okay i didn't take a whole lot so it wasn't like a super weird experience but i remember sitting on a stoop in front of a college dormitory and and seeing this car across the street just kind of turning into an accordion, right? It was still a car, 
but it would like crush itself and uncrush itself and crush itself and uncrush itself and everything else being kind of normal right like all the other cars were fine there were people walking back and forth nothing weird with them there was no crazy shapes or lights i mean maybe a little bit of that but there was something about this one car during this experience and of course you know i tried smoking pot and acid and all kinds of other things and i've had various experiences but ultimately i would say this is true of the majority of people trying a psychedelic at that age you're trying it kind of just to have fun right you just want to have a good time you want to see some crazy stuff maybe and that, that's about it right you just want to have a good time have fun unwind relax and i find myself coming back as an adult you know almost i'm almost 40 coming back to psychedelics as not simply a way to have fun but as a tool in order to explore the universe right and the interesting thing is that it doesn't have to be purely a psychedelic experience, right? This kind of experience could happen to anybody on anything. I remember the first time I had like a really mystical experience doing meditation and I told my wife about it. She thought I was bananas. She thought I was bananas because I, I had this experience. All of a sudden I was filled with light and I saw this. I mean, I'm just going to call it like a. Uh, an alien fetus just floating in space and i was floating in space and and all of a sudden that creature kind of caught wind that i was there as well and turned his head and looked directly at me and just kind of nodded and looked away and kept doing its thing right it's like it was having the same experience that i was having and that, that was really fascinating to me and i've had quite a few of these experiences over the past year or so and i try not to kind of let them become objects of obsession I just kind of treat them as experiences in an ever-growing series and pattern of experiences that help me put together the puzzle of what it is that I am. But again, not by actively working on this puzzle, but by letting work itself out in the background. Now, I have told the story of this floating alien fetus in space uh to a couple folks uh there was some good reaction there were some non-reactions uh and again there was the negative reaction from from my spouse but i've never shared any of the other experiences and this is why i actually wanted to do the mysticism and psychedelics episode should be out i think thursday or friday i haven't decided yet depends how much time i have but because this is a story that I've never told anyone, and actually I've, I've promised myself that before I record that episode, I am going to tell my wife about it. Because I feel if I'm going to share the story with everybody else, then I should share it with the person closest to me. So, uh, so I'll be doing that. But it's a story that's kind of taken a lot of courage, right? It's taken me a year to gain enough understanding of it to be comfortable enough to discuss it publicly. And what the story of Flatland should tell us is that we shouldn't be afraid to tell these stories and share our experiences. We shouldn't think that we're going insane when we see some of these things in meditation or through psychedelic practice or whatever it might be. We should try to figure out what it is that this thing is trying to tell us. And you can't fear the repercussion of what others might think as a result of it. Because ultimately, 
what they think does not matter because you are the ultimate authority. You see how I'm bringing this around into the same topic? It's all related because it's all one thing. There is no me and you and inside and outside and above and below. It's all the same, right? That's why the saying is, as above, so below. Because ultimately they meet in a middle ground and both things are the same. They are the same. And this is true of you and me. Because when I look out through my eyes, I'm not seeing things all around me. Right? The, the general idea is you're, you're like projecting this light out and seeing the world around you. That's not true at all. If that were true, we wouldn't have all these different ideas and beliefs. You're simply staring into a mirror and catching the reflection from inside of you. And this is true of perfectly, quote-unquote, material objects. This is not just a thing of ideas. This is true of material objects as well. Because what you see as yellow and I see as yellow will be different. We might have a general consensus of what we view as yellow, but there is no yellow. A group of people has agreed, this is red, this is yellow, this is white, this is black, this is tall, this is short. But there is no tall, short, color, non-color, none of that. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. And I'm going to be going really deep into this because it's something that I hope you can tell I'm very passionate about. None of those things are real. They are purely a projection that you are putting out into the world. And this is not some crazy mumbo-jumbo mystical talk or, or anything like that at all. This is the way reality works. You know, when I, when I decided to do this podcast, one thing I said to myself is, I do not ever want to bring up science in the podcast. And the reason why that is, well, let me rephrase, certain types of science. The reason why that is is because I see this a lot, a lot, within New Age circles and mystical people and gurus and just folks talking about this thing, right, myself included, where you have a tendency where you want people to see this in, in a way that science teaches it to them. And so a lot of folks will start talking about quantum mechanics, right, and multidimensionality, and uh, you know, entanglement, and possibility of teleportation, faster-than-light travel, and all this stuff. They use this as a crutch to try to explain what it is they're trying to say. And what I'm telling you is that none of that is real either. None of it is real either. But it's all true at the same time. And if you haven't gotten to a point where you can see this kind of thing for yourself, then you are thinking Martin has just gone crazy live on the podcast. But if you start thinking about it for yourself, and this is the only way that you can do it, is by figuring out yourself, giving it your own authority, then you will see what is and is not. And there is nothing else but isness, another topic for a different episode of the podcast. Now, how you do this, there's different methods, right? One of the best ones that I have seen is the neti neti method, uh, in which basically you sit in meditation, and you don't have to sit and meditate. You can do this as you're walking down the street or if you're taking a walk in the woods. And you, you contemplate an object or an idea, and you say to yourself, is this reality? 
And you realize after you ponder on it that it's not. And you go to the next thing. Well, is this reality? And you say, no, that, that is also not reality. And you can do this with anything. You do this with language. With language is one of my favorite things because language is a more concrete thing than some vague philosophical concept like neti neti, right? Or self or consciousness or any of that stuff. Language is something more concrete, something you understand. And you can do this with language. Take any word and look it up in the dictionary. Now, the dictionary will not tell you what that thing is. It will tell you what it is not. This is how the neti-neti method works. Because ultimately, the only way for you to realize what anything is, is by knowing what it is not. Isn't that interesting? You can never know what something is. You can only know what it is not. This is actually one of the concepts in, in philosophy and theology that I'll discuss at some point. Uh, I think uh, Pseudo-Dionysius the Arapagite was one of the more famous people that talked about this concept. And uh, interestingly enough, since we're talking about language, kind of used the, the term agnosia to describe this concept. Agnosia. And of course, you might recognize the term agnosia. That must be where we get the term agnostic. So that means that if you're agnostic, you don't believe in God. That's not true at all. That is kind of what the meaning of agnosia has turned into. But the original meaning of agnosia was actually the exact opposite of that. Knowing, the, the Greek term for knowing would be gnosis, right? That's what you hear about the Gnostics. There's, uh, there's different words that we still use in our daily vocabulary that come from this. From you know, e Even knowing is kind of a, a derivation of that. Gnosis, right? Knowledge. And then if you want to do the opposite, you just add an A in front of it. So agnosia would be the negation of knowing, not knowing. And it doesn't mean you do not know or you do not believe. It simply means you arrive at the definition, at ultimate understanding of it, but denying that it is something that exists. And this is exactly what you do every second of every day as you process the words that I'm saying on this podcast, as you talk with your spouse or your coworker or somebody at the grocery store, but you don't realize it because for you, it's instant. Think about the fact that if you had to analyze what every single word meant in order to form a cohesive sentence and continue talking, it would take forever. And technically it does because it's all one moment a discussion topic for a different episode. But it's the same thing. And, you know, if you ever learned a foreign language, for example, you might have this, where you stumble trying to figure out the correct words to use. But if you're a native speaker, you have a, a very good understanding of a language, you don't do that, right? You don't sing, sit and think about every single word that you say or hear. It just instantly translates. Instantly translates. And I want to I wanna get deeper into this, so I'm going to leave that there but if you want a little bit of homework go read uh borges's the lf fantastic story it's a short story you can find it in any of the borges collections it's i would say less than 10 pages but it's a fascinating story kind of exactly with this topic and uh you know when we get to that point maybe you'll have some understanding of dlf and what it means to know without knowing because there's a you know there's a few different a few different philosophers and religious figures and stuff that have quotes about 
knowing without knowing, right? So Plato has one like, I'm the wisest man, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. You know, Socrates had a similar one, true knowledge exists in knowing that you know nothing. Confucius has one. You, know, you can go to any tradition and you can find a similar quote to this. That ultimately to be the wisest man is to know that you know nothing. And that's, of course, counterintuitive for a lot of people. But this is also true of the mystical experience, of the experience of understanding who we are and what our relationship is to the world outside us, to each other, to the divine, to the universe, however you want to look at it. When you start going really deep into this work, you start to realize everything that you thought you knew is false. Or maybe the majority of it is false. And you start having to come up with a new worldview, a worldview that makes more sense to the things that you have seen. And the most counterintuitive part of all this is, you know, you go to school for decades, right? It's different in different countries around the world, but for example, in the U.S., you start at like four or five, you go through 12 years of schooling, you graduate at 18, you go to college, right? You do either a two-year degree or a four-year degree. Some people take a master's, they do another two years, four years, you get a PhD, right? Another four years. You're in school for, you know, 25 years of your life. And then maybe you realize, well, crap, all this knowledge that I've learned throughout my entire life means nothing. Because you can have one mystical experience through whatever method, right? Again, not necessarily psychedelics, through any method. You can have one mystical experience and your entire life changes. Now, of course, this leads to some issues with some folks, and I've had this discussion, uh, matter of fact, with Mike from the Mind Escape podcast. And this is particularly true, I would say, of folks that try psychedelics, but of course, this is true of anybody that has a mystical experience, because we see, you know, cult leaders arise all the time. And I don't want to get too deep into this, but think about this. Think about how people think they see Jesus, and all of a sudden they start a cult or a branch of, of something else. And then all of a sudden they get revelations and they see, oh, well, now I'm God. And you see this even without, you know, outside of Christian thought. You know, one of the things within uh, the Neo Advaita, for example, is that uh, you are God. Except part of the problem with Neo Advaitans is that, you know, when they say that, they feel like there's no need to do any work. Because if you're God, then why bother doing any work? You already know that you're God. Knowing that you're God uh, has different levels. And part of the problem is most of these people don't actually know these things. They simply believe them so fervently. Because if they truly knew that they were God, then they wouldn't know because they would have no self. So there would be no I to know that they are God. You see how this kind of logic works? It makes no sense. Anyways, I do want to leave it there, but know that the, the journey is the most important part. And I hope if you dive into this journey, you don't fall into the trap of the sphere in which you say, well, now that I've seen all these mystical things, now I understand the universe. Now, now I can just stop because there's nothing beyond that thing. And that's not true at all. There's always more beyond that, right? People always talk about, you know, finding enlightenment and awakening and, 
you know, being one with God, this and the other, however, however, whatever metaphor you want to use for this kind of thing. And I'm going to tell you that you will never find that thing. You will never, ever find it. Because you already are it. So it is only when you understand that that you can cease to look. Because all you need to do is look at yourself. Now, whether you agree with that or not is irrelevant to me. But think about if it's true for you. And the only way for you to do that is to assess it with your own authority. So that's going to be kind of the introduction into the next episode. It'll be out uh, in a couple days. So I'll be talking a lot about authority. Uh, in fact, it may be a multi-part episode. I'm not sure yet. It depends how it goes. Uh, as I always say, I like to keep these, uh, you know, 30 to 45 minutes, and that doesn't always work out. So, you know, this episode as an introduction to this whole thing was 45 minutes. I would assume that that's going to end up being a little bit longer. Uh, I do want to leave you with a, a fantastic short story. Uh, it's from a, a TEDx talk. And I will post a link to the full talk as well. It is called The Five Hindrances of Self-Mastery. Uh, you can listen to the whole thing if you want. I'm just going to play a short clip, a fantastic story that relates exactly to this. It is a talk given by uh, uh, Shaolin master, Shi Cheng He. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's a story about not giving up on the journey and not allowing others to take the journey for you. So enjoy that. Let me know what you think. You can, of course, find me on Twitter at MindAlchemical. Instagram is TheAlchemicalMind.com. Email martin at TheAlchemicalMind.com. And uh, leave those reviews. I received uh, a few this week. I really appreciate everyone that's doing that. So if you have not yet, please do so. And uh, as always, remember that you are it. Without further ado, Master Shi Heng Yi. Enjoy. A master from the Shaolin Temple once told me a story that I would like to share with you. A man was living close to a mountain and every day he was thinking, how would it be to climb that mountain and what would I see on the peak? So finally the day came and the man went on the journey. Arriving at the foot of the mountain, he met the first traveler. So he asked, how did you get up the mountain and what did you see from the top? And so the traveler shared his path and also the view that he had. But then the man was thinking, the way that this traveler described to me sounds very exhausting. I need to find another way to climb. So he continued to walk on the foot of the mountain until he met the next traveler. So once again he asked, how did you climb up that mountain? And what did you see from the top? And so again the traveler shared his story. Still not being determined on which direction and which way to go. The man asked 30 more people, 30 more travelers. When he finished talking to all of them, he finally made up his mind. Now that so many people already shared with me their paths and especially what they all saw from the top, 
I don't need to climb there anymore. Oh, 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 oh,